we begin our usual discussion for the podcast, I want to take a few seconds to let you all know what is going on with the podcast. Since February, our audience of subscribers and listeners has grown, and it continues to grow each day. I can't thank you all enough for subscribing and downloading the episodes. This has given me the confidence to continue producing each new episode with even greater quality and exploring a wider range of topics. For example, we have three education-themed episodes lined up for May, each exploring different aspects of education, from teaching and pay to elections and policy to Newark students in higher ed. I wish doing this work was costless, but it isn't. At the moment, we are out of pocket for recording fees, website upkeep, and promotional material. I have begun to search for ways to monetize the podcast. As part of this process, I've set up a Patreon account, which allows listeners and supporters of the pod to support the podcast financially on a monthly basis, with whatever amounts they would like to contribute or can contribute. If you visit www.patreon.com slash podandmarket, you can find our supporters page along with a couple of goodies for each supporter level. These tokens of appreciation include handwritten cards with unique Newark facts and the ability to choose the quote for the episode. The goal is to keep the podcast free and providing a platform for meaningful discussions. And now for today's episode. When you think of university education, your first thought is often of a professor giving a lecture in some hall with students dutifully taking down notes and asking thoughtful questions. This is only one part of a larger system. Among those who provide the nation's university students with quality education are adjunct professors, part-time lecturers, teaching assistants, and grad students. They conduct section classes separate from lecture, read and grade student-produced work, and answer and interact with students day-to-day. Lately, you may have seen reports in the news describing the lives and salaries of these educators across the country. These reports often include stories of them being underpaid and not able to afford necessities like rent or even food. These educators have begun to speak up about these issues at campuses across the nation. One of these campuses include Rutgers University here in Newark. Today, we have three guests here to discuss and explain the dispute with Rutgers over pay and working conditions. Our guests are Alex Adams, a PhD candidate in the Biological Sciences Department and a department representative to the AAUP AFT Newark chapter. She recently wrote an opinion piece in the Star-Ledger where she detailed her Chapter 7 bankruptcy from being unable to pay her bills. Lauren Barbada, a freelance journalist and a part-time lecturer who has taught the writing program at Rutgers uh, since August 2015. Rob Snyder, the AAUP AFT chapter president at Rutgers Newark, a professor of journalism and American studies in the Department of Arts, Culture, and Media, and the former director of the graduate program in American studies. He has been teaching at Rutgers Newark since 2000. So we have here um, Alex and Lauren. Um, Rob will be joining us shortly. Um, and I just want to jump in with what's been going on at Rutgers. Um, so, care to share the dispute? Do you want to start, Lauren? Sure, I'll start. <laughs> what hasn't been going on at Rutgers? <laughs> well, I could speak for um, the PTLs or the adjunct professors at Rutgers. Um, but if you may have heard in the news, so a few weeks ago, the full-time unit of the Rutgers AAUP AFT, which does represent both full-time faculty and adjuncts and TAs and GAs. However, there's different bargaining units for the full-time faculty and GAs and then the adjuncts. So it's a little confusing because people see union, they think we're all together. Mm -hmm. There's different bargaining units. So you might have seen the news that the full-time faculty um, have settled. And they went the news saying it was a historic victory. Um, They settled after threatening to strike, right? That was in the news. And Cory Booker released a statement, right, supporting. Oh, he um, did? mm Mm-hmm. Oh, specifically for the faculty or just for all the the different units that were? Mm. Well, so, I mean, that's hard to say, actually, because I I think it is sort of lost on people Mm -hmm. that um, 
the faculty and the graduate workers are in the same bargaining unit and we have we're, we're all together in the same contract and for whatever reason the PTLs are not mm-hmm. but Cory Booker is one person that <clears throat> was in support of us if we were going on strike so was Bernie Sanders um, to what extent they were really aware of um, what was at stake for who um, I'm not not entirely sure Right, because I've been trying to, I've been tweeting at Cory Booker and trying to get him to release a statement, like, just for adjuncts, but so far he hasn't. No. And Bernie Sanders hasn't either, but a couple days before, because it was getting a lot of national attention because of Rutgers, if we went on strike, we would be the first, well, it would be the first time in Rutgers history Mm -hmm. that there would have been a strike, a teacher strike. And then, I don't know, the last time a Big Ten university had a strike, but since we're part of the Big Ten, it got a lot of attention. Um, I actually don't, yeah, I don't know that either, if that's even ever happened. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine there's been strikes at universities since probably the 60s. No, that's not the case. I mean, not at any of the Big Ten, but there there are folks going on strike all over. There are people on strike in Chicago right now. But for which university? I'm not even sure which, I always forget with all of the acronyms. But But it's a state, I'm guessing it's a state university. From what I understand. I mean, I could look it up. I, I... I get lost in all yeah. of the happenings because of the internet, but um, yeah, I and I'm trying to think of other. There are other universities that are planning to go on strike. For mm-hmm. example, CUNY is one of them. Yeah, so actually, where everybody's on the same within the same bargaining unit, the adjuncts, the graduate workers, the faculty, all of that. Yeah, a good friend of mine who will eventually be a future guest on this podcast is a CUNY tenure. Just got tenure, actually. Congrats mm-hmm. to him. Um, and he's been telling me about this dispute at, at CUNY and, mm-hmm. and the real possibility of there being some action taken. And uh, frankly, it's not just, I mean, even places that are not at the point of having an action, as, I mean, especially not something so big as a strike, but I mean, I have sort of spoken to other representatives at other universities, like some of the Ivies, for example, yeah. um, that are trying to figure out how to get more organized in order to advocate for their grads and their adjuncts and all of that. Like, oh, everybody's planning, effectively, because we're all in the same boat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're all in the same boat, but I think Alex is right that it's really lost on people. Like, so when records, I think they settled April 16th would have been the day that, like, that night, actually. Bargaining mm-hmm. went on for quite a while. I think they were bargaining that Monday, and that went all through the night, and then they were bargaining again that yeah. Tuesday trying to avoid a strike. I had signed up to be a, a picket captain. Me too. And we were getting, like, updates. Like, I f- got my list of people. Yeah, we had, we yeah. had planned all of the logistics. Yeah. We were strike ready. Mm-hmm. And then um. all of a sudden, they were like, we settled. They go in the media, historic victory. But it's really important, like, access is lost on people, is that they settled for a full-time faculty. So mm-hmm. tenured NTTs, they also What's settled. What's an NTT? Oh, non-tenure track. Okay, so, th- yeah, mm-hmm. I, sh- I feel bad because I'm sure there's a good amount of listenership that mm-hmm. knows, like, and has had gotten, a, you know, undergrad and graduate education, but it is a very complex system. So yeah. we, at the top Especially of the pyramid, at, yeah. <laughs> at the top of the pyramid, we have, like, the chancellor and leadership, mm-hmm. and then we have tenure faculty, faculty right, which mm-hmm. are people who cannot be fired yep. um, except mm-hmm. for certain circumstances. Non-tenure track, who are people basically trying to get to that level. Well, in some right. cases, yes, but a lot of the time our non-tenure track faculty are people that are effectively full-time teachers, I mean, that are not trying to... Because when you talk about tenure track, I think of what it looks like in my department since I'm in a STEM field. People that want to get tenure are people that want to have, like, their own lab so they can do research and also teach, whereas typically the non-tenure track faculty are full-time educators. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, right, because they're non-tenure in the sense that they're not even trying to get to that level. Yes. Got it. Or they could be, but it, yeah, it all depends on the apartment. Like in my yeah, the writing yeah. program, we have some NTTs, and they get like three-year contracts. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those things where like you get a contract, but it's mm-hmm. only three years. It has to get renewed every mm-hmm. three years. Um, they're doing a lot of teaching usually, yeah. maybe more so than the tenured. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so mm-hmm. th- thinking of this futilely, we've from there we've left the nobility into the, the serfs, which are the <laughs> the, adjuncts. the adjuncts and, and the, the, and the grad students. Yeah. <laughs> the grad students are like almost like the mm-hmm. pariahs. Like yeah. <laughs> it's true. And that's that's the funny bit, and I guess that's why we're we're so amped about this, is like the NTTs are teaching a lot, but still the TAs, which I I still think it's funny, and I wrote about this in the op ed, like we're called teaching assistants, but we're not assisting anybody. Mm-hmm. We teach our own courses. It's just like... Oh, really? It, yeah, it's all these terms that <laughs> Rutgers has come up with just to denote where you stand in this hierarchy. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, we're the only institution that I'm aware of that refers to our adjuncts as part-time lecturers when they're not part-time at all. No, I'm a, I, you're a full-time teacher. I say I'm so a full-time part-time. So part-time mm-hmm. reflects not the work, but rather the comp- compensation, essentially, yes. right? Okay. Mm-hmm. And and there, like, you, benefits do that come with being a part time no, person? So yeah, for example, going back to that hierarchy too. Um, so right, so the tenure faculty, the NTTs. So the NTTs get a base salary, mm-hmm. um, and they actually the NTTs got some big wins, like with this last contract. Um, they did, and they, they, did. they and they deserved that. I mean, yeah. like they didn't even have it, it was base, very unstable for them. They didn't mm-hmm. even have a grievance process for firing. It was just like if a department wanted like didn't want you to come back for whatever reason, they could just be like, bye. I was at will, basically. Yeah. 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 So now they, they actually have, like, a, a grievance process where they their firing or whatever needs to be justified. They can't just get tossed out. So that's that's a big win for them, and they, you know, I'm happy for that. Mm-hmm. And they got a pay increase, mm-hmm. and I think maybe longer contracts. Right. And they get the health insurance. But it's so interesting because in my – so in the writing department, which is um, English composition – um, and I believe so I'm at Rutgers Newark. I think Rutgers New Brunswick and Rutgers Camden are in the same boat, as in most writing departments across the country. Mm-hmm. Um, we have nine NTTs, and I was trying to do the calculation because there's so many, but I think 35 adjuncts. So many. So nine NTTs, 35 adjuncts, and then like a handful of TAs. And we're all teaching the same courses. Mm-hmm. So I, when I first started teaching, I was a, a teaching assistant. I'm teaching the same course as an adjunct that I taught when I was a teaching assistant. Right. Um, so I actually wanted to go back to mm-hmm. something that was mentioned um, earlier about April 16th. And mm-hmm. that stood on my head because that was the original plan strike date, right? Mm-hmm. Why is that significant as a strike time? Because I'm thinking of all the times in the year you know, why Why would April be a very particularly interesting time to strike? At least, I, th- I mean, this is why I'm thinking in my back of my mind, it's like it's approaching exam time, right? Right. That's mm-hmm. like, that is like, you know, D-Day for oh, education yeah. time. Um, I mean, it, sorry. Uh, it, I think there are many of us that wanted to strike like in the fall. <laughs> it, well, and then yeah. like at the beginning of the semester. I think it worked out with also the, how negotiations were going, right? And also because right. striking is such a huge process with the, Voting, well, yeah, you have to mm-hmm. make sure that you get enough. And at, with a with an institution as massive at Rutgers, because it's not just like campus by campus, you have to survey everybody at the same time. Like that, that's why I was hired as an organizer for the strike planning 
um, temporarily. But it, even before that, you have to get people to have to vote yes for a strike authorization vote, saying that in the event of a strike, like maybe we would do it. Mm-hmm. And it, it's not even a firm. It's not even a hard yes. It's just like I would maybe do a job action. And then if enough people sign off on that, mm-hmm. and you have to give that time because again, Rutgers is a massive institution, and then you start trying to plan for the actual strike and organizing that massive institution. Right. So it took forever mm-hmm. to I mean, get to that point. It's it's massive not only in Newark, but across the state. I mean, there are two right. other campuses. That's what I'm saying. How much connectivity is there between what's going on in Newark and what's going on in New Brunswick? None. And then Camden. Virtually none. Oh, so it's yeah. like really that segmented. Yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. And, <laughs> and it's not because we want it to be that way. Like, we, we try, especially on North Campus, to get connected to other folks, but mm-hmm. there is certainly a divide. And I don't know how much I can say, but I heard (laughs) (laughs) that. So the Newark campus is probably the most progressive, not surprising. And we're like the most fired up. A lot of the full-time faculty were really on the side of adjuncts and grads. And we're like, if we're striking, we're striking for adjuncts and grads, not for the tenured faculty. Mm -hmm. And so I know a lot of them are are still really pissed. Um, And I heard that a strike would have been really effective at the newer campus, not the Ooh, Camden yeah. campus, because those are two campuses where, like, the full-time faculty apparently were, like, overwhelmingly we would strike, and it was New Brunswick that they were. I heard the same thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, so I, th- so I imagine a lot of our, our listeners know this, but, I mean, this is the weird part about Rutgers compared to other... So when I think of, like, the other great state university system in the country, everyone goes to California, right? And UCLA has such a distinct reputation from Cal Berkeley, right? right? Even though they are structurally part of the same system, but they're, they operate also independently of each other. But no one's ever thinking, you know, UCLA is in so much of the shadow of Cal Berkeley. Whereas here, mm-hmm. New Brunswick is the sort of weird spiritual center of mm-hmm. Rutgers. Yep. Um, and Newark, it just comes off, even though I don't think it is, as a satellite campus, mm-hmm. right? As right. like, oh, we have a program in Newark. Mm-hmm. And the way that Seton Hall has its law school in Newark, despite being run out of South Orange. Um, how does that affect, like, the fight at oh, Rutgers-Newark? So many ways, because I'm just thinking, too, you know, it's so interesting that the New Brunswick professors were, like, less likely to strike because part of the um, bargaining was getting pay um, equity among all three campuses. Right. But this does not apply to adjuncts and TAGAs because if you're a TA at New Brunswick, you get the same pay if you're a TA at Rutgers New Brunswick, mm-hmm. or I mean Rutgers Newark, and the same with the adjunct, like our adjunct flat rate is the same again, uh, mm-hmm. all three campuses. And I'm not sure about the NTTs actually might also, the base pay might be the same. I'm not sure about that. I just know the tenured the faculty. Tenured. They, mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're at New Brunswick. You make the most. Mm-hmm. And then <clears throat> Newark is next. Yeah. And then comes Camden. Mm-hmm. So everyone... As far as faculty are concerned, full-time faculty, they were all being paid differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm wondering how much this is a chicken and egg problem because, the again, going back to the spiritual center thing, mm-hmm. the prestige – I mean, welcome to academia. So yep. listeners who haven't you know, had a life in academia, you'll slowly learn that everything's about this sort of elusive thing of prestige and like oh, publishing. Yeah. And um, it's the smallest fights over the smallest things that happen. And, and I'm wondering how much – you know, being the Rutgers professor at New Brunswick affects, like, you know, your ability to, like, 
be on panels and, and publish mm-hmm. and do stuff, and therefore you're fighting harder to get in there, and that, that ends up reflecting in pay as well because Rutgers, on its side, is trying to retain faculty of note. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, how much that affects Newark's tenure faculty. This is actually, mm-hmm. and I don't want to miss a discussion of tenure faculty, but I think it matters to the debate that's going on here um, is just how much how much stuff going on in New Brunswick ends up affecting mm-hmm. oh, you guys here. So much. And like, well, the, talking about prestige too, I sat in a, a bargaining session last fall when they had an opening bargaining session. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then the university stopped that because yeah. they did not like having, you know, a lot of PTLs came. The commoners. And, yeah. The commoners. <laughs> they didn't like having us there, yeah. But I think it was um, David Hughes, who's the vice president of um, the Rutgers AAUPAFT, um, you know, they're talking about how there was a professor at the Camden campus that got the MacArthur Genius Grant. Oh. Yep. And he did, but he was at Camden, which they get the least paid. And he was tenured, but he got the least pay. He got the MacArthur. Which is probably and, more than his pay. Probably. The MacArthur Genius Grant almost yeah. surely is more than his oh, pay. Oh, yeah. And Rutgers didn't give him a raise, so he went to USC, my alma mater, actually. Right, right. Wait, ca- uh, Southern California? Yeah. Oh, Wow. That's actually my undergrad alma mater. And so I didn't he know that about you. Yeah. Cool. I went to California. I came back. <laughs> <laughs> that And funny thing, despite its name, it is a private it's university. A private, Although yeah. of note recently, sorry to bring it up, but because of the Lori Laughlin um, scandal. It's okay. I'm a proud it's, Rutgers New York yeah. grad. So I, got my, <laughs> I got my master's at Rutgers New York, and I'm a proud Rutgers New York grad. But, oh. um, but I remember them saying, they did go to USC, give them more money. Makes sense. USC has tons of money. And, and, it has, and it has a prestige <laughs> level. I mean, it's, it's I think it's lost in us here on the East Coast, but in the West Coast, USC has this like like aura around mm-hmm. it of being like not just a great sports program, but also being like a place to go, right? Yeah, it's a, you know I don't know ranked number twenty three now in America. Yeah, 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 and, yeah. But trying to compete with Stanford, and but they have the money, and um, but Rutgers also has the money, and so I remember the one of the people on the bargaining team were like, if there was a MacArthur Genius Grant on campus, I think I would know. And David was like, he was on campus, but he was in Camden. Right. So it was kind of like, yeah, if you're not at New Brunswick. They don't, frankly, they don't care. <laughs> okay, we have Rob just came in. Uh, we're just going to continue um, what we've been discussing. Um, so uh, we were talking about um, sort of the structure and the relationship between Rutgers New Brunswick, Rutgers Newark, Rutgers Camden. Um, and just to reorient, um, what... Um, I guess the question I have is, if anything changes in Newark, will it change in New Brunswick? Or, mm. you know, do, do you have to have all bells striking at the same time? That's a great question. Um, how, yeah, how effective is shutting down Newark if that were to happen? Would mm. it cause changes across the entire system? I mean, I, no. I don't think that's enough. I mean, it's not like Newark is completely off the map, but if we don't stand as a united force, it just looks like one campus has gone rogue. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the thing, is we, we need to, as an institution, we have to be able to stand together. Otherwise, it just looks crazy. It looks like people are just acting out at one campus as opposed to all of them. I, I don't think that that would be effective. I think that would actually be damaging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that one of the things that the mobilization showed is that Newark has actually gained a, a considerable degree of institutional heft and a considerable degree of commitment on the part of faculty and particularly grad students as well. It's not the same university. I was 
encountering when I came here 20 years ago. It's a more strong place. It's a more robust place. It's more assertive about its place within the university. But for all that, it's not going to stand effectively by itself if it wants to change the rest of the university. I actually think Rutgers Newark has come a long way in the last 20 years and demands a respect that is consistent with all that we've done to build up graduate programs, to build up undergraduate teaching, to commit the university to being in Newark. And that's something that goes on going back to Steve Diner's days as a dean in the faculty and then carries forward to Nancy Kanzler's chancellorship today. But by ourselves, we can't change the whole university. Well, it's funny, speaking of by yourselves, uh, I'm thinking of one group that both doesn't matter at all but also matters a whole ton, and that's the undergrads, right? Who, oh, yeah. Who are the... the the, the the fuel to the whole mm-hmm. operation that is a university. And, I mean, I'd imagine most are sympathetic, but what what kind of buy-in have you had from undergrads? Oh, that's right. They're pissed. <laughs> they are so mm-hmm. pissed, and Lauren can speak to this better than anybody. Yeah, my undergrads were so radicalized this semester. I made protests part of our... They're I, so you know, great. For my English 101. Mm. They're, they're basically the whole last month, the whole month of April has been mm. all about protests. Um and they are, so that's, you know, we're talking about the prestige with New Brunswick, and I agree with Alex and Rob that if we do something on Newark, it won't change anything, and if, yeah, we're going rogue, and it'd be like, oh, those crazy right. people in Newark. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But maybe a coalition between Newark and Camden. That would be powerful, Something about actually. how, like, so my students, you know, Rutgers Newark is very different than Rutgers New Brunswick. We're a commuter school still. They're trying to build more dorms. Yeah. Um, but there's really not that much room. No. And I don't know where they would put them. Which yeah. is kind of sad because you go up – this is more NJ, NJIT because it's mm-hmm. funny how, how close these two universities yeah. are, like mm-hmm. to the point where it's undistinguishable. Yeah. Um, but you walk up there and it looks like a quad, mm-hmm. right? In the spring, mm-hmm. like there are people playing Frisbee. And I'm like, wow, this is like an actual college campus. It reminds me of my, my undergrad and days. My students have been talking about that because we've been talking – so a lot of my students' concerns, you know, we started a Twitter account – I don't know if I should say it. At are you shitty? Are, are you underscore shitty? There goes, I'll say it. There goes the red E next to my podcast yeah. title. That for was this their one. idea. It was their idea. They've and come, we love them for it. They've come up with so many. They're, they're right. Rutgers really set itself up with the are you. We have are you broke? Are you cheap? Are yeah, you, I, I saw those signs yeah. when I walked by. There. I found them a bit witty. Yeah, those are my know. students. Also, uh, you can follow at uh, are you exploited to stay right. up to date on adjunct related issues as we are in the midst of contract negotiations still. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they they really they they didn't know. I'm sure when they when no. they started calling everything RU uh, in place of Rutgers University. Uh, that was part of an ad, that, that was, I'm assuming that came from an ad campaign that Rutgers was doing to like, attract students. Like RU, like are you hungry? Is like the food one. Yeah, but yeah. that's the thing. And now, yeah. no, but I'm, I'm wondering if you guys. Uh, uh, um, took uh, an already existing R. I don't know if Rutgers no, University yeah, had an ad campaign called RU. Probably positive term in the blank, but. I'm sure that they do, and that's why this is in our heads now. Can you think of any, Rob? About four or five years ago, when President Barchi first came to Rutgers, he came to Newark and, and, and announced his vision for Newark and his vision for New Brunswick and his vision for Camden. And his vision for New Brunswick was that it would be the flagship campus. His vision for Camden was that it would be the service campus. And his vision for Newark was that it would be the laboratory for diversity. <laughs> yeah. And we smelled a rat in that. And oh, the, fa- yeah. the faculty was very angry. The students that, were yeah, very what does angry. That mean? I don't know. We could never get a really good answer on it. And we did a lot of social media campaigning, and we we used a lot of play on Rutgers 
tags and things like that to get the word out. And I think that we pushed back sufficiently that he decided to leave us alone, that we were more trouble than we were worth, and we would be allowed to some degree to grow on our own, yeah. right? But to grow, you have to grow equitably. And the money that is distributed between New Brunswick, Camden, and Newark is very unequal, mm -hmm. and that needed to be corrected. And we're in the beginning now of correcting that, only in the beginning. Yeah, I mean, Rob wasn't here for this earlier part, but we talked about the UC system where they don't have this kind of similar problem, even though they all are united. UCLA has a distinct personality from Cal Berkeley and that, that those are respected. And here it just seems like we're treating Newark as like, when you call it the Laboratory for Diversity, it sounds like you're talking about a satellite campus rather than an independent institution. A lot of us worked really hard to build up graduate programs at Newark because we wanted to be a real university in its own right. I ran the graduate program in American Studies. One of my colleagues in the union, Sean Mitchell, ran, runs a graduate program in Global Urban Studies. We always had a fair number of science PhD programs going back to the 70s. And I think that people have been really committed to building the place up, but also wanted to get its fair share from the university as a whole. But I think that's part of the problem is that that still is lost on people. Like I've been at Rutgers now for four years. I moved all the way down the street from NJIT, my alma mater. Yeah. Um, but still, when I'll, I'll I'll talk to my friends' families, they'll be like, "Oh, so you know where are you at now?" I'm like, "I'm teaching at Rutgers," and they're like, "Oh, in New Brunswick?" I'm like, "No, at yeah. Newark." They're mm. like, "Oh, mm. not at the main campus." Yeah. I'm like, "It's they're all." campuses yeah it's one Rutgers I mean like for all intents and purposes your degrees don't they don't stamp it Newark no, do they, they no. it's just Rutgers I think Rutgers. mine Rutgers. says Newark does it says, it? it says Rutgers okay. University and a lot of students even Newark students will yeah. trade on that right yeah and it's where the rubber hits yeah. the road right it's like what does it physically actually say on the thing you put on yeah. your wall yeah I have to check my I, I mean, know I'm, my department's also weird because it's a federated department mm. between Rutgers and NJIT so it says both things Mine might actually say New York because I was in the MFA, and there's an MFA uh, at, at Camden, but, but they're different. It's distinct, yeah. You yeah. guys have your own little right. building. It's right. actually kind of cool. Yeah. yeah. One thing that struck me was when I started to talk to my students about the contract negotiations and the strike mobilization, and I offered to answer any questions that they had. And I pointed out that the union had discovered that in the schools of arts and sciences, faculty in New Brunswick made 10% more than the faculty in Newark and 20% more than the faculty in Camden. And they're really angry about that, but the expressions that I saw on their faces weren't just anger. Mm -hmm. There was anger, there was disappointment, and a certain sense of not being surprised, because I think mm -hmm. a lot of our students have been told many times in countless ways across their lives, they're really not worth as much as other people. Mm -hmm. And so when they get to Rutgers Newark, oh right, professors who teach us, yeah, that would make sense that you would pay them less, because we're not as uh, important. Mm -hmm. Ouch. You know, so and, and I want to fight against yeah. that. You know, yeah, and it, right? I, yeah, it reinforces a sense that we're a colony. And yeah. I would even mm -hmm. use the metaphor in class. I said, like, so we're Ireland, and then New Brunswick is London, and then we're Algeria, and New Brunswick is Paris. Paris. And they all caught into it, and they were yeah. you know, picking up all their colonies yeah. and We're Lisbon. They're, they're yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 exactly. You we're, we, you know, we're, we're Mozambique, and they're <laughs> Lisbon. They, yeah. they completely got it. It was really a kind yeah. of wonderful experience. Wow. Like, our students know. Like, I told them about what Barchi said about Laboratory for Diversity, and they were just disgusted. We also made a tweet about this. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, they know, and they actually came up with a slogan for New Brunswick. I don't know if I should say it. They were like, New Brunswick, where the white people go. Yep. Uh, no, I mean, you know, okay, like, I mean, this is sort of the weird elephant in the room, but, like, mm -hmm. what, what did people think? This is more true, I think, 20 years ago, but, like, when you thought of Rutgers, New Brunswick, you thought of the suburban, your Bergen County, your, your suburban Exus County people mm -hmm. going to, like, flagship state university. And when you thought of Newark, you thought of local kids 
who were who had a, migrated out of the ECC system but wanted to get like a, a, a um, an actual bachelor's degree, um, and they you know they wanted to stay near home because it was cheaper, it was you know less cost than living on campus, um, and that's kind of sad because that's really what it shouldn't be about. I would think, right? Because it's not a purely commuter school. It's not meant to be. No, it's yeah. not. And like the fact, and and this really coming back to what you said earlier is like about how the people that are lost in all of this that that really should be and are the primary focus are our undergraduate students. And frankly, that that really pisses me off because we have quality students mm-hmm. at our university. Yeah. I love teaching at Rutgers Newark and. Like the the whole laboratory for diversity is just that's it's great that we have such a diverse campus. I mean, someone and I haven't fact checked this, but someone mentioned to me that we may actually be the most diverse campus in the country. Most diverse national university in the USA for right. more than a decade. Really? Right. Oh, yeah. More yeah. than the UC system. Wow. Yeah. And that's. It's a qualified statistic. Most diverse no, national yeah, yeah. university. But it's a real statistic. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. for real. You just walk around and you yeah. see it. Wow. But it's like the <laughs> no, of course, yeah. I mean, you walk around Rutgers Newark, you can physically. No, see yeah, definitely, it. and I think that that adds to. Um, I mean, it adds to the quality of our campus for sure. But it's not just like people walked in from anywhere. It's not just like people walked out of Essex County College, and that's all of our student makeup. Like we have, we have folks from everywhere, mm-hmm. and that's what makes this campus so special, and that's what makes our students so special. Right, but there still is. Um... You know, because I have a lot of students that do come over from, like, Hudson County because they got into New Brunswick, but then they can't afford to dorm at New Brunswick, right? right? So we do have, like, a lot of students that commute because they couldn't afford the dorms at New Brunswick, which are more expensive than the dorms at Newark. Yeah, definitely. And the dorms at Newark are ridiculously expensive (laughs) as it is. Yeah, I once Mm -hmm. spent a summer in one of them. It was, oh, God, it was hot. It was so hot in there. (laughs) It's the one on Bleecker Street, the tall one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was... That was interesting. It was very Spartan, too, like, compared to my undergrad. It was, like, just cinder blocks. That's all it was. There's cockroaches there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's also (laughs) cockroaches there. Um, Actually, I wanted to ask a quick question because it was mentioned earlier, and I never thought about this until it was said, but NGIT, also a state university right next to you. Is there cross-pollinization? Are they having the same problems? Like. Mm. There are federated departments. There's also union efforts there, too, that are important. But there's not as much contact between the two as you would think for places that are so close. There was a plan discussed to merge them a number of years ago, and that had its merits. It would have made a big and very robust place. But for people like me who are in the humanities, that was a very scary thought because it would basically mean taking a tech and science university, merging it with a Rutgers Newark where the humanities are a small presence already, and the humanities get smaller and smaller and smaller. That's why it was called the Laboratory of Diversity, right? Like – it just seemed like they were gunning to make it a, a STEM campus in a weird sense. There's always been a, a tension on the faculty is what's our purpose? Yeah. Is our purpose to train people for careers and jobs or is it to give them a liberal arts education? We always try to balance that yeah. out. That goes back a long way. That diversity thing is so interesting too because I remember seeing something – like we have an A for diversity. I don't know where I saw – I don't know if this was like U.S. News and World Report mm-hmm. or like one of those places where like we get an A for diversity – I think Camden gets maybe like a B. I don't think they had an A. I think we're more diverse than Camden. And then New Brunswick gets a D. Mm. But when you put all of Rutgers together, it's like a B or something. Uh, So it's kind of like Newark is like upholding, you know. 
they're always trying to figure out whether we're all one university or three universities. Mm-hmm. So when our numbers help them gain diversity, they're thrilled to count us one. as part of yeah. Rutgers. Yeah. But in other ways, they want to ditch us. And it's really infuriating because although Rutgers New Brunswick is more diverse than it used to be, what we're particularly proud of at Rutgers Newark is taking students who are non-traditional students, many of whom mm-hmm. don't yeah. speak English as their first language, and getting them into college and through college and graduating in really strong shape to go forward with the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. And that's really something we should be really proud of. And that's something that we do even better than they do in New Brunswick. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And going back to – because that's one thing. I think that community colleges get a bad rap, and I – almost just loosely implied this before, but it's like we do get, or at least in in my courses, I've had a lot of students come in from Essex, from Hudson County College, and they, and it's sad because these people often come in and they're like, I don't know if I can do this. Like, I don't know if I can pass this class. Like, you know, foundations of cell molecular biology and whatever. And it's like, you're, no, but like, but that's the thing. I'm like, you're you're more than capable of doing that. Like, you've already been in college. Like I couldn't pass it. <laughs> <laughs> like most people are just walking into this without any education. Like you, you were already at college. Yeah. You were at it's a community. It's still college, just because it's community college. Like you're you're already more qualified than you know anyone that's just walked in for the first time. Uh, this is another though. See, I have all the student complaints and yeah. the same about the New York, New Brunswick. My students are telling me, my Rutgers New York students are saying that if they wanted to um, transfer to New Brunswick, like a lot of their credits wouldn't transfer over, oh, yeah. especially yeah. a lot of their science credits. And that like a lot of my bio majors said they would be like three semesters behind or something. Oh, That's I always, terrible. I always assumed, again, I didn't graduate from the system, but like, I always assumed there was complete parity and complete recognition. Sort no, of like, like, like the, the United States, there's full faith and credit, right, between New Jersey and California, that, but this is not true. That's what I thought. That's what my students thought. But then now they're finding this out because some of them do want to transfer. I mean, I think with um, the business school there is because the business school is technically the same between Newark and New Brunswick. Is it? And with social work as There's well. a business school in New Brunswick? Really? I didn't even well, know that. Well, the business school mm-hmm. used to be in Newark, right? But mm-hmm. then when Rutgers New Brunswick decided no university could be a university without a business school, they mm-hmm. built a business school in New Brunswick. Oh. Right? The law school used to be in Newark and Camden, but then they decided they had to create a bigger law school, so they had to create an umbrella law school that Why would incorporate that? Newark and Camden. That's all in mm-hmm. the last five to ten years. I yeah. mean, yeah. we often wind up at Newark being the laboratory of really good things that are then, <laughs> like, that are then taken yeah. over by the rest of Rutgers, so you know, and like, that's, that's infuriating. I like laboratory of really good things. <laughs> yeah. So I just want to, um, this is all a great discussion because I think this all relates to the important work that's being done by adjuncts, uh, part-time lecturers, and, and grad students. And I want to put a more human face on it by um, handing it over to Alex to talk about an article she uh, released in the Star-Ledger last Friday about the real consequences. Because we talk about like lack of benefits and pay, but I mean, I, I, what I love about your piece is it puts a really human and authentic face on that on those problems. So would you like to talk a little bit yeah, about sure. your article? Um, boy, where do I start? Um, so I... Coming into grad school, like you, you get a contract that says like how much you are going to be paid, and I guess in my head I thought that it was something that I would be able to manage. Um, and once I came into the program, it wasn't so bad. So I, my for a little bit of background, what I have been making for my four years at Rutgers is. Uh, $25,969 uh, over 10 months. 
and that we we are now i mean i guess it's be it's ratified now our new contract but we haven't had um raises or new contracts since 2014 which is the year before i started so now in 2019 we we do have a small raise um and incrementally that's going to increase over the next contract period but um I, I didn't realize how bad it was actually going to be. And, like, frankly, as a graduate student, especially when you work in STEM, you, you don't do anything but that. Like, I don't I do not do anything but teach my classes and work in the lab, aside from, like, when I get invited to do a podcast over the weekend before I go into lab or whatever. Thank you, thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I uh, – what's funny is I started – I actually – I wasn't going to read any of them, but – my friend messaged me about the horrific comments that were being left on my article. And, like, I was only aware of it coming out as of last night. And between the time that that dropped and I told people about it and uh, 2,300 comments appearing on that article yeah. was with a, in the span of a couple of hours, which maybe I would be flattered if they weren't all about how I was a silly girl. I am 27 years old and a full-time teacher at Rutgers, so do not call me girl. Like, I dare mm. you to say that to my face, for one. But I, I don't... All about overspending. And it's like, what, what exactly would I overspend? <laughs> my rent is $1,000 a month. That's 50% of my pay. Like, I need to pay for public transportation. I don't have a car. Um... I need to pay for my electric. I need to pay for gas. And then it's anything else, right? Like, I have to buy food. <sighs> and then what's left? Right. Nothing. I don't do anything. Those are basic needs. And that's one thing that also frustrates me in the state of New Jersey is, like, because when we talk about this, we say that we're effectively living in poverty, because there are times that I can't pay my rent. There are times that I can't buy food. We have a food pantry for grad workers at Rutgers Newark, at least. I don't know about the other campuses. Mm -hmm. Because people are desperate. People are literally hungry. Mm -hmm. Dedicating their entire lives to education and research. And so that's, that's what I wrote about in my op-ed is how over the years, and especially in, I mean, like I managed to get teaching positions over the summer where you get Half of that. So, and like my first summer teaching, I was getting some paychecks for like $60 every two weeks. And then I would get one for like $500. It didn't make any fucking sense. Like it's just, it was a living nightmare. And I went into extreme debt trying to pay my bills because I didn't know when I was getting a paycheck or for how much. Um, and I had to borrow money from people just to pay my rent because that you can't pay with credit. Um, but I was paying for everything else on credit. And when that happens four years in a row and you don't make enough during the regular semester to compensate, to save anything, to pay off those bills. And of course, if you have a bunch of things on credit, you're paying for interest. You're not paying into whatever it is that <laughs> you originally right. borrowed. And that gets out of control. And then I like I like Lauren, I broke my ankle last year. And it was bad enough that I had to have surgery. So then, of course, there are all of those expenses. And, like, you can't get everywhere on crutches, so then you're, you know, you're paying for rides on credit because you still have to come to work. Mm. Um, so 
eventually I realized that I I could not pay my bills and still pay my rent and still eat. And I filed for bankruptcy. And when I went to see my lawyer, she was like, she was not surprised at all looking at my finances. She's like, well, you literally don't make enough to live. She's like, <laughs> she's like, you like, this is a clear shot at chapter seven because you make less than $55,000 a year. You, that's what you need to live here. Mm-hmm. You're at half of that. <laughs> so of course you're bankrupt. Right. I, I just want you to explain like the importance of your PhD to you. I mean, th- what's I think often forgotten is like, it seems like what I got from the comments and I have to really appreciate you bringing that up because I, I felt really strange to like, you know, going delving into those comments because it oh, is man. a black hole in its own weirdness. But I think a lot of the gist of them were getting at this idea of like, oh, this is a silly endeavor, you know, using right. words like girl, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that you're mismanaging this. Can can you just also explain the importance of what you do and, yeah. and the importance of the PhD to you, but also to the larger world? Right. Um, boy, I, I could create my own like black hole of... <laughs> Uh, an explanation on that, but just to start, I mean, like we, and I, I sort of got to this in the beginning of a, talking about my own personal experience, but like we, we all accept that getting a PhD is a sacrifice um, because we're all underpaid. It doesn't matter where you are. I mean, it's it's basically free labor for any institution. You have to really care about what you're doing and see the greater impact of that in order to invest that much of your life. And, like, that's the thing is you don't even know how long a PhD is going to take. It's just, like, it, especially in STEM, they're just, like, you meet with your committee X number of times, and then they're, like, oh, that seems like enough. Like, you start writing your dissertation, and I'm, like, when are you? When am I going to graduate? And they're, like, I don't know, four months from now? And you're, like, wow, I haven't written a word of my dissertation because I didn't know I was leaving. But... <laughs> um, the thing of it is, and, like, this isn't the case necessarily for everybody, but, like, I went into, like, I, I decided, because you make this decision when you decide to get a PhD, that I was at least going to be in most ways a career academic um, because you care about education more than you care about really anything else, um, both for yourself and for the people that you are educating. I really, and that's one thing that, I'm so grateful, despite all of my hardships, that I've been given an opportunity to learn how to educate people better. Um, And as far as the PhD, you basically embark on a journey in a whatever field you're in, on a philosophical journey to a place that no one has ever taken before. That's, That's the most interesting part of a PhD is that you're studying something that, that really no one has ever done before. It's about the novelty. It's about making a discovery for humankind, regardless of what field you're in. And that's, I think, incredibly valuable and definitely undervalued. Because you're, you're trying to uncover something for everyone on Earth that no one has ever looked at before. I think that that's fascinating and incredibly important. Yeah, I think what often gets lost in this is just like the importance of, and not just STEM, I think like there's a classic trope of like the STEM PhDs are the ones who are doing the research that actually saves society. And I'm like, well, that's not true. That's at not all. true at all. 
Um, and, and obviously I have a bias as a person who is trained in the humanities, who has a degree that's uh, a, a graduate degree that's in law. What does law count as? I don't know. It's, 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 it's part <laughs> social science, part, um, part humanity, but that all these PhDs are important. And, and these institutions make a choice when we you know when Rutgers exists, it actually wants people to be researching in these areas. And you're not, PhD students don't go into this like on a lark, right? right? Um, this isn't. They do it because they're passionate. They do this because they um, they have a vision for the world. But they also want to teach people, right? Right. Undergrads. I mean, a lot of that the connection that's going on between undergrads and the institution is often through these um, through grad students through adjuncts. Um, and I just want to open up discussion to a larger like where where are we going now? What's what are the plans? Um, what uh, what do you hope for? Um, out of these um, mm. negotiations and disputes and protests? Mm. What do we hope for? I mean, like, I have sort of a... I, I, I feel like... And this is probably the case for you, but I, I, I sort of have a short-term vision and a long-term vision. Mm. And in the short-term, and, like, why I'm standing by our adjuncts as they go on to their own battle in contract negotiations is that I desperately want them to get paid what they need to survive. That shouldn't be, it, 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 that's not supposed to be asking very much, but it's like, I don't want to lose our quality educators. And I've had people in my own department that have quit halfway through the semester because they can't, they can't afford to live on that salary. Mm -hmm. They can't do it. Um, and that's so incredibly sad and shameful, frankly. Um, I don't want to see that happen. I don't want to lose people like Lauren. And in the broader scope of things, I think that there is a cultural shift in academia happening right now. And I hope that we can be a part of it because there are other institutions in this part of the country and otherwise in not even just in higher education, but in elementary school teachers and high school teachers that people are saying we've had enough like we have more value than than you're giving us and i i think it would be great if Rutgers is a part of that change yeah i think short term well very short term so like we were talking about earlier the hierarchy the adjuncts did not get a contract um and our next bargaining session is monday i don't know what's going to happen after Monday. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. There is going to be a protest at New Brunswick. and um, But there's also um, a couple... Well, there's a few protests, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's our next bargaining session. Um, and what we're asking for, the adjunct... So we are asking for $7,250 per course. Mm -hmm. Currently, we get 5178 per course. Although I was told recently, like, that's, like, the should be the minimum base pay for all three campuses. But I met an adjunct who teaches ESL at Rutgers Newark. Oh, and yeah. she gets, like, half that, right? Mm -hmm. I forgot how much. But I like, forget how much, too, but it's significantly less. Yeah. So we're trying to figure that out. Um, and she So the plight of the adjunct, um, you know, a little different than TA. And I used to be a TA. Um, but the adjunct now is that either – so at Rutgers, you can only work – um, technically three courses per semester if you're an adjunct. Because, like, any more than that, they would have to make you full-time. Mm -hmm. Like, at least the NTT. <laughs> right. Quote, so about quote-unquote full-time. Because doing three, you know, I teach composition, that's a lot of work. That's a lot of grading. They have to do eight uh, papers and 
per student, and I have sixty students. So like that that is. And what does that look lot. like in terms of <laughs> in terms of pay in a year? What does that give you? Just to clarify, just put that number out. So if you teach six courses at Rutgers on the adjunct salary, that should be around like thirty one thousand before taxes. Wow. Yeah. So what we're asking for the seventy two fifty would put us up to like you know low forties, mm-hmm. which would be a little more livable. That would be three courses a semester, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think what a lot of people don't understand is the workload. I mean, mm-hmm. even a full-time tenured faculty member, they're teaching, what, two a semester? or And then they get a break yeah. every, what two, is it? Two, two. Yeah, sorry. pretty much now two, two. Depends on the department, and it varies. It, it, can, it can run as high as, it used to be three, three when I came here, mm-hmm. which was very bad for a research university that you're supposed to get tenure by publishing. Because right, right. if you're teaching three, three, you can't publish anything. And how frequently do you get to take a sabbatical as a full-time faculty member? It depends um, whether you take it um, at eighty percent pay or hundred percent pay, but it's every th- it's pretty it's every three years you get a semester, every six years you they get sh- a year. They should really mm-hmm. stop calling it a sabbatical if it's every you know, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like every seven, seven right? Mm-hmm. But what Rutgers has done is it's gone down a road that a lot of universities went down a long time, which is to hire part-time and contingent labor to make right. it cheaper for them, right? Right. And one of the demands that the union put forward, which is really connected to that seven thousand plus per course is to break the economic logic of making it cheaper to hire PTLs and and adjuncts Mm -hmm. and to start to pay them a fraction of what a full-time professor makes Mm -hmm. and and destroy the incentive that the university has to farm work to the lowest paid members of the faculty. By paying those faculty members more, it suddenly makes it less likely that Rutgers is going to shunt work to people and then pay them very little to do it. Right. Right. Um, and just to give a larger scope to everything, um, the way Rutgers operates financially is there's a hefty amount that comes from tuition. And imagine the state government, like any other state university, and mm-hmm. along with the federal government, supplies a lot more money as well. So you well, think less money all the time? That's the problem. Oh, that, so yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask is so what's yeah. causing? It seems like there there must be a push, unless they're just really crass, the administrators, and just want to pay people less. But I'm assuming they're not completely um, um, callous. What Why what are, are the economic forces? I I because I I I, I want to make that assumption because I haven't met them yet. Well, that's <laughs> um, kind of you. But I, I want to say, what are the economic forces at play? Why why um, why is there a push to continually hire um, adjuncts and part time lecturers? Well, because it's cheap. Well, yeah, yeah, but like, but, but I'm assuming is there is there another growth? Are there other areas that are being paid more? Uh, is there other parts of the university that also... Well, at a public cost? university, I mean, and like Rutgers is a public university, right? There's less and less money coming from state governments. Okay. I mean, this is a problem everywhere. But Rutgers stands out within the Big Ten among public universities for paying adjuncts and PTLs badly. That's something that, that that's, that's, a, that's a mark of shame, mm-hmm. right? But... The problem of of paying for higher education is one that's nationwide, and the solution is forcing work onto the lowest paid workers and have them do an increasing percentage of the instruction. That's just a really exploitative way to solve the problem. It's the it's the worst way to solve the problem. And frankly, if you and this is one thing that um, has been part of the adjunct campaigning is like, and this is one thing that. I, I don't know that everyone is entirely aware of, and when students hear about it, they freak out because with their ever-rising tuition, if you look at the wildly inflated salaries of our administrators at Rutgers, who, what is it, Nancy Cantor makes, what, 400? 417. 417 before her, what is it, $60,000 bonus? Mm-hmm. Which is more than my students looked this up. 
Right. More than the average worker salary in the U.S. She does not pay rent. She has a driver to drive her all the way from right over here. Uh, what is it, 15 Washington mm-hmm. that she's at? To the law school building. Rutgers Newark. Right. To the law school building. Um, and those numbers, of course, just continuously go up. And that was one thing. We made a flyer. We can also share that with you if you're interested. At some of the most inflated. or they're not. And that's the thing is it's not even uncommon for universities to pay their presidents and their chancellors this much money. But, oh, my God, why do you need that much money? What are you even doing with that? And it's like, that's the thing is tuition continues to go up. No one is improving the physical state of the institution, which is why at RU Shitty exists, (laughs) um, to point that out continuously Mm -hmm. because no one is fixing any of the physical problems that we have on campus. And to not pay the educators more, to not pay the educators a living wage. But our administrators are making boatloads of money all every year and every year it's probably more i don't even know Mm -hmm. it really is like you say economic forces but it really just seems like capitalism Mm -hmm. and callousness just thinking about you know because adjuncts don't get health care um and i don't know if i should say this which is funny because the school operates a hospital exactly (laughs) and Rutgers new brunswick had that whole partnership right with robert wood johnson recently but it so economic forces i'll be complaining about it to someone like a staff member on campus and they're like oh you're never going to get health insurance it's too expensive and you know but a lot of americans also just have that idea too about health insurance like it's too expensive that's why companies don't provide it and i'm like no, but we need health insurance. Like, everyone needs health yeah. insurance. Yeah, what's life for if we're just going to not actually take care of our bodies? Exactly. I mean. But we really don't get any benefits as an adjunct. Um, so, again, I hate – that's why I'm saying adjunct, not PTL, because I'm a full-time right. part-timer. I used to teach, by the way, another thing with the plight with adjuncts, since you can't live on 31 grand, um, I used to teach – the most I ever taught was five classes a semester – and, and again, I'm talking about composition classes, That's insane. which is a lot of grading. But yeah. I've known people in my department that have taught like eight a semester yep. at like four or five different universities. And um, the fortunate thing with, with Rutgers, Barchi, I know, says this a lot because I think we're the highest paid adjuncts in New Jersey. That's what it seems like. I don't know if that that's still true, true though. We're in the New York metropolitan area. Yeah, but it's same. really yes. expensive to yeah. live here. Yeah. Really, really expensive to live here, and the and the pay that PTLs get is just not enough mm-hmm. to carry you through rent and groceries. The fiction that the university abides by is that the people who work as PTLs are like lawyers, coaches, accountants, fully salaried professionals who teach on the side for the love of sharing their knowledge. In fact, it's incredibly hardworking people who have to piece together a living by teaching courses one day at this campus, one day at that campus, one day at another campus. Mm -hmm. It's incredibly exploitative, Mm -hmm. and it just destroys the very opportunities that those folks have to then get full-time work at a university later on. So it exploits them in two directions. Mm -hmm. It erodes the number of full-time positions, whether tenured or not tenured track, and then it pays them poorly while they're on that track working as a PTL or an NTT. It's doubly bad. And it's been coming, it's 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 been the problem of academe for more than 30 years now. And it's reaching crisis proportions in some places, like Rutgers. And that's one of the reasons people got really angry. Because Rutgers' enrollments have gone up over the last five years or so, but we have not hired full-time faculty to keep pace with that. We've had hired PTLs and non-tenure track faculty, and that's that's not fair to anybody in that equation. 
It makes no sense in my department, you know, in the composition departments. And as I gleaned just anecdotally, it's like this at a lot of universities across the country. You know, in the composition departments, it's a lot of grad students who are teaching or adjuncts. Very few tenured, pe well, no tenured people at Rutgers. And there's only nine NTTs again in my department, but like 35 adjuncts. And uh, it, apparently my boss was trying to get more NTT lines, but she couldn't get any from the university. They won't give her the money. They do not want to give mm -hmm. people more of those. And they definitely don't want to give people more TA lines. No, but it's like, but, you know, composition, These I teach the classes that every freshman or every transfer student has to teach. These are classes are always going to be there, and they always have full enrollment. She has to make more classes, like, each semester. So it's like, I don't understand the logic, like you know, you're going to have these classes. These needs to be taught by full-time professors, right? But again, it's just cheap, like no benefits. You know, we don't yeah. even get um, I don't get sick days. I broke my ankle the first day of classes. I taught every single class on crutches. Mm -hmm. Um, but everyone was asking me, even the doctor. He's like, "Are oh, you back to work yet?" He says like eight weeks later, and it never occurred to me like, "Oh, a lot of people could take medical leave," you know? Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. But we don't. Yeah, we don't get sick days. Nothing. And just to speak a little bit to more of the, the grad workers' concerns, first of all, a lot of, and, and this is part of it, is that the university definitely does not want to give departments more TA lines, despite the fact that they are ever increasing the number of courses that any single department teaches, especially when you have a department that teaches entry-level courses. Like, everybody has to take general biology, whether or not you're a biology major, right? So mm -hmm. we have to offer that. And as we admit more people to the university, that just means that they, they try and get people to teach more, but it's like, I have a contract that says that you can't make me teach more than X number of hours. So what they do, uh, since they can't get more TA lines, is that now they're, they're hiring more grads as PTLs. So we right. have a lot of PhD mm -hmm. students and master students um, that are, are making PTL salary, which <laughs> frankly is good and bad because my pay, and like I won't be here when this happens because I'm in my fourth year of my PhD, I'm about to leave. Um, by the end of the contract that we just ratified, um, we'll still be making less than what PTLs are making now. But we have health insurance, mm -hmm. which is super important and something that you guys lack. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's just punishing for everybody. Yeah, and let's not get started on the health insurance. I know people that were like, they didn't know how to afford it because it would cost them, you know, they were... Um, had a partner who also didn't have health insurance. They're looking at like eight hundred to like twelve hundred dollars per month, right. which you can't afford on the adjunct salary unless you teach eight classes a semester. Right, and th that's <laughs> that's the other thing. I I met just a, anecdotally. I, I there was one PTL that I met when I was um, organizing for the strike that didn't happen. Um, that I met, and I forget she was she was between several departments, but she was like she came to our action. And she wanted to sign in solidarity of the other adjuncts. But she was like, I, I teach from 8.30 in the morning until 9 o'clock at night most days. She's like, I teach at two different prisons today. Like, I, ha I, like I, w I wish I could stay and support everybody, but I literally can't because I have a two-year-old child. Like, I have to make ends meet. Um, so as we wrap up, I just want to turn it over to the guests to let them bring up any... Um any other things that you, we may have missed out on this conversation about um, about pay and, and benefits for um, for these educators? Um, is there anything else that you think you want to mention or that should be mentioned? I, I just think that 
PTLs should push forward and the unions should support them and they should win the very best contract possible, one that gives them a fair pay for the work that they do and starts to break the back of this system of exploiting part-time lecturers to do increasing bulk of the university's teaching load. Within the AUPAFT as a whole at Rutgers, I think that we want to push forward and vigorously enforce the provisions of the contract we won because I think it makes conditions overall at Rutgers more equal across campuses for women and for people of color. And then within Rutgers Newark, I think that we want to keep pushing to make this the most robust university that it can be within Rutgers because I think if Newark's not allowed to become its full self to achieve its full potential within Rutgers, there's going to be real rumblings down the road. Mm -hmm. I have several quick thoughts because I feel like I've talked way too much already. First thought, Loyola College mm -hmm. is the one that I was thinking of earlier when I was talking about Chicago. Their grads oh, locked out. Oh, wow. Yeah. They, I don't, I, that just came to me suddenly, so I figured I would point it out. Um, and that's a private school. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but following up on what Rob was saying, two things. First thing is that as graduate workers, and this goes for the NTTs, and full-time faculty, we, we have to stand by our adjuncts now. And that's one thing that I don't think anyone is doing a good enough job at um, because they, they need our support now more than ever. And that's something that we at all of the universities need to come together and do. We need to do right by them because we lean on them for everything all the time. Um, and I have one more thing, but I forget what it was. Oh, yeah, just... Very basic thought, like, we can't provide a quality education if we can't provide our educators a quality of living. And not just, like, a good quality of living, but a quality of living, a living wage, the ability to pay your rent and eat. So it's, it, it is a fundamental thing for the entire university, for the people that we're trying to educate. Definitely. That's what I was going to say. Like, you can't, I can't provide my students a quality education Oh, my God, when I was teaching, and again, five courses isn't even that much when you're teaching eight or nine. But you know, my, my colleagues who were <laughs> no, teaching eight or nine, so they were like, you're just teaching five. But, I mean, that was, I was so burnt out. But even teaching three, you're so burnt out. Oh, yeah. You know, because everything on top, especially, again, I'm teaching the students, too, who are college freshmen, sophomores. My classes are small, so they really get to know me. And that's good, like, because they're getting introduced to college, and it's a little different than teaching, like, a big lecture right. course, you know. But, uh, but it takes a lot out of you. And it's like, basically, I probably make less than $8 an hour. <laughs> well, yeah, when you consider how many hours you're spending grading and how many papers that is yeah, so relative like, to your pay. So the higher pay, like that's 7200 per course. And that's what the CUNYs are asking for as well, 7000 or strike is their campaign. Yeah, at 7 k or strike. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the immediate short term. Um, I don't think we're going to get it with this contract, although I'm optimistic. I'm like, we could get anything. But everyone's like, you're going to get nothing. <laughs> or we're going to get, like, they gave the full-time faculty 3%, right? And um, It was a lump and also th then percentages after right. that. Yeah. yeah. But, like, that's nothing if you're an adjunct, right? 3% of 5,178. Like, I think it's <laughs> funny when people are like, because I was, I mean, I was sort of pissed when I got, I mean, because the fact of the matter is that uh, our negotiating team was like was in bargaining for 14 months in total 13 14 and they not until like the last day of bargaining did they give anything to grads so i know that they fought tooth and nail to get mm -hmm. something out of them but i was sort of pissed at the email that i got from the union when they 
announced our historic wins and they said significant gains for grads. And then when I <laughs> was public about that, people were like, oh, didn't you get the same percentage increase that faculty did? I'm like, what, what does that matter? <laughs> that doesn't mean anything when you make, make $26,000 yeah. a year. Wow. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, I want to end the pod as we usually do, which is uh, each of our guests sharing something they're excited for or um, went to in Newark. And I just want to throw it over to them to share anything that they're excited for. Oh, well, I had my broken ankle, so I couldn't really go out this winter in Newark, which made me sad. Oh, <laughs> me too. But now I can walk. So I'm excited. Well, one, I'm excited that there's a new women's writers workshop in Newark. I have, yeah. Oh. Mm-hmm. I am also, I was thinking about that because I walk by that every single morning. They're doing it like every like couple months. Yeah. That's what you're talking about. I, yeah. I badly want to go to that now that I can walk as well. I'm also excited for, um, I just hope the weather warms up because I love spending summers in Military Park, Washington Park. I'm excited to, I usually, um, I'll be teaching a summer course again, mm-hmm. uh, extra money. Thank you, Rutgers. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and last summer, I took my students to Military Park a couple of times and taught in the park. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, so I'll probably do that again this summer. And also, I'm excited about the Friday nights at the library. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes, our local <laughs> library turns into a club on Friday nights. It's kind of weird. But it also is cool. really weird. <laughs> Super cool. <laughs> oh, my God, that is summer. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't do anything because I'm still trying to finish my PhD, but... I, I love Newark in the summertime. Like, it's, the city is just so alive in the summer, even if you're just walking through. Like, I love leaving the lab late nights mm-hmm. in the summer when it's dark and, like, having people just still, like, out in the streets having a great time. And, like, just I, I love that. I love Newark in the summertime. I think Newark is at a really important crossroads in its history. It's economically a lot more vital than it was when I came here to teach 20 years ago. But the key is to make sure that that economic vitality is distributed equally around the city. And that's a big nagging question. And I think Rutgers Newark is doing what it can, can always do more to try to work to make sure that the economic changes that come to Newark are as equitable as possible. And that's a good reason why it's useful to have a university in this old city, particularly a university with a social justice dimension that can help it make a more equitable place for everybody who lives and works here. Nice. Um, My thing to share was on Friday night, I was at the Brick City Comedy Review, which had its fifth anniversary, and Mm -hmm. it was amazing. Um, We had about like 100, 120 people. I don't know. There was somebody... We're glad the fire marshal didn't come by because it was packed (laughs) in there, and it was a headline by the Lucas Brothers who have a special on Netflix, and they're from here... Um, and all the, the acts um, that, that performed that night um, were amazing. And it was amazing to see the co-hosts uh, come back together. So um, it's hosted by uh, Justin Williams, but his original co-host had stopped doing the, 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 um, the comedy show, but came back for that night. And it was amazing to see them both on stage at the end. And um, there was an amazing after party. It was just all, all around. Amazing to see a, an institution sustaining itself for five years in Newark and being such an, the the audience is incredibly diverse. The comics really appreciate it coming from New York city to find this audience. That's very supportive of what they're doing and not heckling and not really shouting people down. And it's just amazing. Um, But yeah, that's it for the episode today. We'd like to thank our guests, Rob, Alex, and Lauren. Um, This is Manny Antunes, host and producer of the pod and market podcast, editing and sound engineering by Byphrase, podcast logo and design provided by Robert Conti. Additional creative input by Samantha Gateas. 
Pod intro and outro music by Dan Myler. If you have a subject you would like to hear discussed on the podcast, please email podandmarket at gmail.com or contact the pod through social media. We're also asking our listeners to start supporting us on Patreon. Um, you can visit us at www.patreon.com slash podandmarket. Um, we are on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Um, and I'm going to end with a quote um, from Philip Broth. Uh, so many of you might know... Um, HBO is filming The Plot Against America. Um, literally outside my apartment. It's kind of crazy to walk out of my apartment and be in 1930s so cool. Newark. Um, it is pretty cool. And I posted some pictures on, on my personal Insta, and I think I'll probably share some on on the podcast Instagram. Um, but, um, in fact, at the comedy show last night, I was shouted out um, by the MC during the, during the comedy show where he was giving out free stuff for, like, things about Newark. And he's like, can anyone except Manny name a Philip Roth novel? <laughs> And I was, like, biting at the teeth because I wanted to go with, like, a deep cut, like, Indignation or, like, Everyman. Um, <laughs> but the funny thing was I had not read Plot Against America because I always had looked at it as, like, oh, that was the mainstream thing he did in 2006 mm. to kind of, like, sell books or whatever because it was, like, a sexy subject. It was, like, Nazis in America. And because of the filming, I decided to go and read the book. And it is – it's not his best thing, but it is really weird. Um, and it is amazing. The one thing he got right, I think, is how – we can just sort of pathetically waltz into um, uh, a sort of strange, not full fascist fascist state, but like one that's just kind of like muddles through. Mm-hmm. It's not 1984. It's it's not even Brave New World. It's just sort of, it's what we have now. It's 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 a president who, instead of flying across the country in his plane while he's president, is um, tweeting right. And 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 there and and the cool thing about the book, I don't want to give away the ending, but it has a. Uh, an ending unlike any other dystopian novel I've ever read. Um, and what's cool is the reason why I want to read it is there's a little shout out to the namesake of the podcast. So here's your quote. In the drawing, completed at the age of nine and smacking inadvertently of Soviet poster art, Sandy envisioned her miles from our house amid a joyous crowd on the corner of Broad and Market, a slender young woman of 23 with dark hair and a smile that is all robust delight. She is surprisingly on her own and wearing her floral patterned kitchen apron at the intersection of the city's two busiest thoroughfares. One hand spread wide across the front of the apron, where the span of her hips is still deceptively girlish, while the other, she alone in the crowd, is pointing to the skyward to the spirit of St. Louis, passably, passing visibly above downtown New York at precisely the moment she comes to realize that, in a feat of no less triumphant for a mortal than Lindbergh's, she has conceived Sanford Roth. Thank you.